Well, we are going to continue through the book of Daniel. So if you want to, you can turn in your Bible to Daniel chapter 2. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we always have uh, Bibles at the Connections table at the back. I want you to be able to follow along. Um, as you're turning to Daniel chapter 2, just a second ago, I was thinking, uh, April, we're going to roll out our kind of our Beyond Initiative for the building. They're getting close to having that thing designed. And this morning, I, I caught one of those chairs that's missing one of the feet, you know. So I was like rocking, and then the screen started blinking, and I was like, April, I'm so excited for April. Uh, no, I'm, I'm glad to be here and thankful for this place, but uh, man, glad you're here this morning. Daniel chapter 2, 50 verses, all right, so we're going to get after it. We're not going to be able to go line by line. I'm going to paraphrase some of it, and then we're going to kind of zoom in and out of the, of the chapter to see what God wants us to do. And I'm going to do something that usually you don't do in preaching. I'm going to give you kind of like the takeaway of this whole thing at the very beginning. And so I think if we're going to kind of go through this long chapter, this long story about a dream full of prophecy and Daniel and his friends seeking the Lord and God showing us really even what's ahead in the future, it might be good for you to have some things that you're kind of looking at this with uh, these particular lenses this morning. So there's three questions I want to answer this morning that hopefully will be uh, practical for us when we're looking at a king who had a dream from the Lord thousands of years ago. And so here's the three questions. First is this, why would God allow impossible situations? We're going to look at this story. Uh, this scenario is an impossible scenario for any human to, to really intervene. So the first question is, why would God do that? Why would God allow impossible situations? The next question we're going to answer is, why would he put you and I in the middle of impossible situations? Right, like what, what's his purpose for you and I as his followers to be in the middle of something that we have no power in and of ourselves to contribute to? And lastly, what's the result of these situations? Like what comes out of these things that God is doing in his sovereignty in the midst of impossible things? So I want to give you the answers. So if you're one of those guys or girls that's like, hey, I, I can pay attention the first like 10 minutes. You'll have everything you need and you can just zone off the rest of the time. Uh, first is this, why would God allow impossible situations? It is because he wants to put his glory, his power, his name on full display, right? What we're going to see is God's trying to do something in this pagan kingdom that has no idea who he is. He's wanting to show them, this is who I am. This is what my kingdom is about. This is my power, my beauty, my glory, my wisdom. He wants to put that on display. Why does he put you and I in that situation? I think for us personally, what he wants to do in us in these moments where it's like, I don't have the skills to do this in my own strength. He wants to build our faith. He wants to build our trust. What's amazing to me is he wants to use you and I as his mouthpiece, as his hands and his feet in, in, in ways that the world looks on and is like, that doesn't even make sense. He wants to deepen our worship, our love, our fervor for him. And then what does he accomplish in the end? One, yes, he gets glory. Yes, we grow in faith and worship. But finally, I, I think that the world looks on and sees the glory of this God on full display. And that's what Daniel chapter 2 is going to be about. I want us to see these things happening as we're looking at this and, and even maybe uh, come up against some, uh, some false ideas, false theology in this, uh, this, this. Yeah, so we're going to look at it. It's going to be good. We're going to jump in. Daniel chapter 2. I, I want to start by just telling you like the first half of this thing, okay? So here's what's happened. You've got King Nebuchadnezzar. They've taken over the Israelites. And now he's in the second year of his reign. And he's up at night having these dreams that are literally keeping him so angst up that he can't sleep at night. 
And so what he does is he grabs all his wisest people. He's got magicians and he's got uh, all these folks that can, are supposed to be able to tell the future and, and be able to look at medians and tell him what's going on. And he brings those people in, these, these people that don't know God, these pagan people. And he goes, look, I've had this dream and I, I can't sleep at night and I need you to tell me what this dream means. And so these wise men, these magicians, all these, uh, all these folks, they go, okay, yeah, king, just tell us what the dream was. 100% we'll be able to tell you what was going on. And then the king says something that, that, that is impossible. <laughs> he goes, I, I, I don't want to tell you what my dream is, and then you just tell me what you think it was. The only way I'll know that you know what my dream was about is you need to tell me what I dreamed in the middle of the night. <laughs> and all these pagan guys are like, uh, can't do that. Could you just, if you'll just tell us, we got you, just tell us. And he goes, look, if you don't tell me what my dream is, and you don't tell me what it means, I'm going to put you to death, I'm going to put your families to death, and I'm going to bury your houses in the ground. And so they get this moment where they're going, uh, this is impossible. And I want you to look at verse 11, because this is their response after all of this. They say that the thing that the king has asked is difficult, you think? <laughs> And no one can show it to the king except the gods, little G gods, right? This isn't our God, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Like they're smart enough to go, what you've asked is impossible. There's not a human being that's going to be able to tell you what you were dreaming at night and what that dream means. That, that's something for the gods, right? And, and what's amazing, what, what's so cool is we're going to see in here Daniel putting God in his glory, his wisdom on full display. I think about the fact like they had to have pagan temples, they had pagan priests probably, and it's like, man, those gods could provide nothing in this moment, right? All, all these people, they're, all these gods that they're paying homage to have no power, no wisdom, no strength, and these wise men are like, this is impossible. What you've asked cannot be accomplished. And so we continue on, and he says this, verse 12. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. That would be Daniel and his friends as well, right? Uh, everybody that says they have wisdom, everybody that says they're able to interpret dreams, I want them all destroyed. And so there comes this moment now where the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? He's like, what is happening that you're about to put us to death? What is going on in the kingdom? And so Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And look at his response. Verse 16. And Daniel went and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. So here we are. We're in the middle of this impossible situation. Uh, the outcome, like if, if, if there's not a human being that can figure out what's going on, the outcome is a death sentence. And they come to Daniel, and he, here's the first thing I want you to see. Why I believe Daniel understood the sovereignty of God, him, him allowing certain things to come our way for his glory. What does he do? He, he doesn't know the dream yet. He doesn't have any interpretation. And yet... He tells this guy, hey, go, go to the king and tell him, I'll come and tell him what the dream is. Like there's this deep faith and trust in the middle of a circumstance that Daniel doesn't have the ability to, to come through with, but he goes, my God is faithful. I could trust you in this moment. Go tell the king. There's this deep-seated faith and trust in the middle of an impossible circumstance. 
Now, I think he gives us a very practical step next. Like, for you and I, here's what I want to say. I've heard, I've heard this said before where, um, like, God won't give you more than you can handle. Uh, you may have heard that before, right? Like, be strong. God won't give you more than you can handle. That's a, that's a pretty common Christian phrase. Uh, I know where it comes from in Scripture. There's this place uh, where uh, Paul says, hey, we will not be tempted above what we can bear. Like, God will not tempt us to sin above what we are able to handle, and he will provide in the midst of that a way of escape. So that's the scripture that this has kind of come out of context. It says, look, God's never going to put something on you you can't handle. So just, man, just keep pushing on, man. Keep keeping on. I'm telling you, scripture teaches that God on purpose is going to put you and I in places that you are ill-equipped and have zero power or authority to do anything about it without him moving. Why? Because he wants to get the glory. If you and I can do all these things, if everything we go through, it goes back to that self-sufficiency, self-reliance that we talked about last week. If you are able to accomplish everything next week in your own strength, God gets no glory for your life. In fact, I was talking to somebody this week that was uh, really trying, they're like, man, in the last six months, I'm really trying to walk deep with the Lord. I'm trying to stir up my fervor from God. It's really the first time since college that I've even uh, really been after the Lord. And he said, my feelings aren't following kind of this this desire to to know the Lord. Like I'm in the word, I'm going to church, all these things, but my feelings aren't being stirred up for God. It's like I want to love him and feel it in my gut. And I was like, well, one, your feelings don't dictate everything, right? Now, I do believe God wants to stir up our emotions for him. That's a good thing. And so I said, man, when is the last time, and maybe this was just on my mind, When's the last time you stepped into something that you were ill-equipped to do and God had to come through? Because I think there's something day-to-day living that if you and I can walk into things that God's calling us into that we don't have the authority or the ability to do in and of ourselves, and he shows up and he moves, I was like, dude, that's going to stir you up to love and affection. Like you're walking in a way that you're seeing God move in ways that only he can do that. And so I believe Daniel is in this moment. He knows that God has placed him in a situation that he doesn't have the ability to come through. And so what's the thing he does next? Look at what scripture says. Verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah and his companions. He's already told the guy, he's like, hey, tell the king we're coming. I'll have this thing because God's going to be faithful to his people. So he goes to his buddies. He says this. In verse 18, he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven. This this word God of heaven is used in this chapter five times, right? You've got these pagan guys that that have no authority, no power, no ability. They're seeking pagan demonic forces, and there's no way to tell the king's dream and what the interpretation means. And yet you've got the God of heaven about to put himself on full display. And so he says, I want us to seek mercy from the Lord. This thing can't happen without God being kind and gracious and merciful to us. So that Daniel and his his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Verse 19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. So this is a dream, right? He sees this vision of what the dream was of the king. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And he goes into this moment of worship. This is Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of, the God, of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. 
He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God, my Father, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and you have made known to me what we asked of you for you have made known to us the king's matter. What is the first thing when Daniel is in in the face of a situation that is outside of his control, outside of his power, what does he do? And he pleads with the Lord, I I need you to intervene. I I think so often we get in moments in our life where things get difficult and they are out of our control. And, And I guess the question I have for myself, for you, like what is your default in those moments? Is your default to go like round up your people and go, man, I need you to tell me what to do right here. What do you guys think? Is your default to go and just get more control and hold on to this tighter and go, I'm going to try my best to make this happen. Or is our default to go, God, it's possible that you've put me in a place that I can't do anything so that you want to put your glory on display and you want to do something in me that teaches me to love you, trust you, have deeper faith and worship you in a greater way. Would you show up in power? Because I trust that you're faithful. I trust that your promises are true. And so this is what Daniel does. If there was ever a picture of the gospel on full display, this is the moment. I want you to think about this for a second. You've got the king has made a declaration that if you can't do something that's impossible, I'm putting you to death. The penalty, the payment, death. Zero power to do that. And Daniel goes, we've got to seek mercy. The word mercy means forgiveness. We, we need to seek the favor and the forgiveness of God or we will be destroyed like every single other person. Like this is the gospel. This is what salvation looks like. It's this moment where you and I realize because of our sin, we've been separated from the Lord and there is nothing we can do. Like there is nothing you and I could do to gain the favor of God, to gain forgiveness, to make up for our wrongs. And literally the penalty is death. And you've got Christ stepping into that. And he defeats death and sin and the grave. And he says, if you'll seek me with, for mercy, if you'll seek me with faith and trust, you will be delivered. And you think God knows what he's doing in this moment? Like, he's telling a big story here in the middle of Nebuchadnezzar's life. There's, there's more that he's wanting to put on display, but he's, he's trying to remind you and I, he has paved a way for us to find forgiveness when we couldn't do it ourselves. And so this faith and this trust, this seeking God moves Daniel to a place of worship. And he points out some things that I would hope would bring you and I to worship as well. There, there are just some attributes of God that I want, I want us just to highlight for a moment. The first is this. He talks about that God has been forever and ever. He highlights his eternality. He's, he has no beginning, no end. Right, can we trust him in impossible situations? He's been from the beginning and before the beginning. He highlights his wisdom and his might. This is the idea of his omniscience, that he knows all things. That, 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 just in my personal life, is something that blows my mind. Right? He talks about even that he sees what's in the dark and all these things. And you take that back to kind of just our relationship with the Lord. It's like he knows all things, he sees what's in the dark, and yet he saves us, yet he loves us, yet he uses us. He's omniscient. He knows all things, man. Everything that you will face tomorrow, he already knows. And he's omnipotent, 
all-powerful. There is nothing that can stand in his way. He will accomplish what he wants to accomplish, and no one can stop that. And that is the God who says, you're mine. I have purpose for you. I have a future for you. And Daniel sees that in the midst of what, what could be his death. He goes, I have faith. I have trust. Let me go talk to the king. My God's faithful. He knows everything. He's all powerful. He, he will come through. He talks about the idea of seasons, that he removes and sets up kings. This is the idea that he is sovereignly ruling over the nation. We looked at that at the very beginning of Daniel. The story at a huge like macro level is the kingdom of God and his, his renown against kind of this Babylonian or the kingdom of darkness. And that God's going to use both his people and people that don't even know him to accomplish his purposes for his glory. Daniel knows that. And so it makes him fearless to go, I, I, I see that I'm in an impossible situation, but I know my God is faithful. He's sovereign. He knows what's in the dark and in the light, revelation and knowledge. And he has made known what we've asked. He is faithful. If there's anything that we could take away this morning, and the next time you find yourself in a situation that God may have ordained that is way above you, in a situation where the fire's turned up, things are difficult, if we could trust, if we could believe God wants to do something for his glory to be on display, something where we will trust him and love him deeper, if we'll walk in that type of resolve that he is faithful, man, he's going to receive glory in our lives. And so then Daniel comes before the king. And so I, I kind of want to get you, there, there's a lot here. Um, and we're going to get in some prophecy, that, which is pretty cool. So I'll show you a quick part of that. But, but let's, let's kind of look for a moment again. Let's zoom out and see what happens. Daniel gets before the king. He says, I, I, I'm going to be able to tell you the, the dream. And there's a couple of statements in this conversation back and forth with Nebuchadnezzar that are really important. Uh, the first, if you'll look at verse 26. He said, then the king declared to Daniel, whose name is, was Belshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I've seen in its interpretation. And what Daniel does in these next couple of statements is really important because God wants to, man, when God puts us in situations that we don't have the strength to do outside of his spirit working in us, that there's a propensity in you and I to want to steal the glory of those moments. We're a glory-hungry people. And in the good things and the good gifts that God has given us, so often we want to put the focus on us. And I want you to see just his, his humility and, and how he responds. Are you able to make this known to me? Verse 27, Daniel answered the king and said, no. Uh, no wise man, no encanters, no magicians or astrologers, no, none of these pagan gods, none of these demonic forces are going to be able to tell you what you're asking. Verse 28, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he is made known to King Nebuchadnezzar. This is the whole purpose. You, you have an entire nation that doesn't know who God is. And he has is, he is formulated or caused or allowed a situation that is impossible. And he's using some, some kids in an impossible situation so that a nation may know that he is the God of heaven. And Daniel sees that and he gives him the glory. Verse 29, to you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. And who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be, verse 30. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have. 
more than everybody else, but because God wants to accomplish this purpose. There's this, and and I've struggled with this in my own life. Like in the church world, right, um, I've I've been able to sing, I can can preach, right? And so there's these moments where where it's like, yeah, man, I like when someone says you did a good job. I like when you're like, oh, man, that was a great sermon. I studied hard. You're right, it was. I thought it was good too. Um, my wife's always like the center, uh, helps keep me center though. I'm like, that was a good sermon. She's like, it was horrible. No, <laughs> um, sometimes, sometimes, uh, anyway, but I think we do this in everything, right? Um, the, the material possessions that you have in this room, there's some of you guys that really love to take credit for that. You, you really love to, that, that gives you some sense of worth, the house you live in, the car you drive, your bank account. Um, some of you guys have been really successful in your careers. And you go, man, I, I love for people to know that I work hard and look at the giftings I have. And, and if we're not careful, some of you are incredible parents, right? And you're always putting yourself on Facebook, making everybody else feel bad. Um, <laughs> but there's something in us, right, that, that God does great things in us that really we would not be doing outside of him moving in us, and we love to steal his glory in those moments. P- part of just the day-to-day mundane life where we give God glory in circumstances that are impossible is that we just remember that, man, the air that you breathe is borrowed from the Lord. The giftings you have is borrowed from the Lord, and it's for him, and it's for his glory and his name. And so you can go into your workplace tomorrow and whatever that is, some random office job, and God get immense glory because you just point to him in all that you do. You know what? If you have a ton of material possessions, use that to bless others. Use that to show that God has just been good to you. And if you don't have a ton of material possessions, show that God's been faithful to meet your needs. And he's still good to you. Right? Like, I mean, the, the, the goal of life for you and I is that we're putting his glory on display. And so we've got to live a life like Dan. If, if I just know my own heart, I probably, there would have been something in me rolling up to the king like Daniel and been like, you can do this? Yeah, bro, I got you. Me and the Lord are like this. I, I got you figured out. I'm going to tell you some things, and then we're going to move on down. No, he's like, I, I don't have the ability to do this. I'm not going to be glory hungry in this moment. And he puts the God of heaven on full display. Now, let's get into prophecy. That's always fun, right? Uh, surely I know every single answer to every question you have about prophecy in this moment. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to give you just a few things that I think are pretty amazing. Uh, I think God is, is going to do something. Look, there's a lot of people that, that have said what the future would look like. Sometimes they get it right. Sometimes they get it wrong. The Lord, when he speaks about what the future will be, is 100 for 100, right? He's batting 1,000. And it's amazing to me that we look at this dream that Nebuchadnezzar has, and we see it, like, legitimately play out in history. It's incredible to me, right? He is a God that is sovereign. He is a God that is all-knowing. He is a God that is all-powerful. And the end is already determined for you and I, and that should give us hope. And so here's what happens. Verse 31. He says, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This is the dream. This image was mighty and of exceeding brightness, and it stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. 
Now, so what we've got is a statue, and he's about to tell the different metals that are in the statue as you're following along. So the head of the image was a fine gold, and its chest and arms, silver. Its middle and its thighs, bronze. Its legs of iron. Its feet, partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold all together were broken in pieces, and they became like the chaff of the summer threshing floor, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found but the stone that struck the image. It became a great mountain, and it filled the whole earth. So before we get to the interpretation, you've got a statue. Golden head, silver midpart, bronze kind of legs, all those things, iron at the bottom of the legs, and then iron and clay at the feet. And there's this rock, not made by any human, that comes, strikes this, this statue on the feet, and everything just turns into dust, right? It's like chaff in the wind. It blows dust in the wind is really what it's saying. Like whatever this, this rock was that came, it just shattered everything. And then it became this great mountain that filled the whole earth. And so then Daniel begins to say, what are these things? Verse 36, this was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and in whose hands he has given uh, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the fields, the birds of heaven, making you rule over them all. Just a side note, church. We don't have to be fearful of, of situations in the world. You don't have to be fearful. God gave this pagan king dominion over everything for his purpose. It goes back to day one that we looked at this. There are going to be so many things that happen in our world, and we have to trust that God is still in control. He is still sovereign. He is still powerful. He's still working in the midst of people that don't know him, nations that don't know him, to accomplish really what he's going to tell us in this dream, his final purpose. He said, so he said this, you, O king, are the head of gold. So Babylon, this, this nation that really was in time and place in history, this isn't Bible story that doesn't, it's not real, right? Like this is a real ruling kingdom that you can go find historical things about. They were the head of gold. He goes on and he says, um, And into whose hand he has given it, blah, 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 the beast of the field. Sorry, I lost my spot. 39. And another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. This is silver. And yet another kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there should be a fourth kingdom, kingdom strong as iron because Iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. Like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all of these. And as you saw, the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. So we're at the feet and the toes. It's this weird divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron, partly clay, so this kingdom that it's representing shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, they will mix with one another in marriage. So these kingdoms are mixing together, and it's like they shouldn't be together, but they are. They're kind of strong in some ways, really brittle in other ways. 
but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. 44, this is important. And in those days of those kings, the toe kings, <laughs> that those days, wherever that is in history, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and then it broke to pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and the interpretation is sure. When God speaks prophetically, it's certain and it's sure. Now, to help us for a moment, most theologians, we believe we've figured out most of the statue. Um, and so I want to throw up a picture because if you're visual, it'll help a ton. Um, and so here's kind of a picture of the dude's jacked, whoever it was. But anyway, um, so here's this, this statue in this dream. You've got the head of gold that is Babylon. Babylon only lasted 66 years. So Daniel and his boys are here. This is a 66-year thing. If you remember at the end of chapter 1, King Cyrus, it says he was there until King Cyrus. King Cyrus sends the Israelites back to rebuild Jerusalem. So this, this head of gold, it's huge, it's beautiful, um, but it's also soft, right? Like gold's a soft metal. And so next, the Medes and the Persians, and you can look this up outside of the Bible, right? The, the, the Persians and the Medes come in and take over this, this Chaldean empire, this Babylonian empire. And, and they have uh, 200 plus years that they reign. Silver's a little stronger. And then you have the belly and the thighs of bronze. Uh, this is Greece. Alexander the Great comes in, takes over the Medes and the Persians. And they last for a long time as well, a couple hundred years. And then the legs of iron, which is stronger than all these other metals, is Rome. You know, some people say Rome lasted for a thousand years. Um, you know, 600 years is really like their strength. So you have the, these legs of iron that represent Rome. And this is, gets us to Jesus' time, right? This is, now we're, we're not in B.C., we're in A.D., if you remember, in 70 A.D., the Romans come in and level Israel one more time. Eventually, uh, they fall. This great empire falls. You know what else? I, this is just super, I'm not even going to go there. That's not from the Lord. Never mind. Uh, uh, feet of iron and clay. So you've got this, this random group of people that are kind of intertwined, and there's a lot of different things that people say these are. And so I'm going to give you those so you can figure out for yourself. I believe what I believe, but, um, and I'll tell you what that is. I mean, some people think this is like the, the last of, of Rome where they start getting kind of weak. And, the, you know, Rome becomes a Christian empire. Right? I don't know if it's a true Christian empire, but it, like Christianity is the national religion of, of Rome. And so some people say that's kind of the moment. The rock comes in, breaks the feet, and now Christianity is the deal. Jesus came, set up the kingdom. That's a possibility. Uh, some people say that this is going to just be like for the next, since Christ, these eastern countries that have some power and then go away until the return of Jesus. And then lastly, uh, some believe like this is like straight up end time stuff. And I want to read you just a couple of things. I, I believe it's future end times things. And I want to show you some pretty, I, I think, amazing things that Bible just helps us understand. So in Revelation 17, 1 and 2. Um, there's this moment, and it says this. 
Come, I will show you judgment of the great prostitute. When you're reading chapter 17, it talks about this great prostitute. Uh, that's supposed to be Babylon, right? And again, Babylon is, the Romans were called Babylon. The, the Grecians were called Babylon, right? This is just the kingdoms of the world. So you have this great prostitute, Babylon, who's seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the, dwell, uh, the dwellers on the earth have become drunk. So it starts talking about this idea that you have this intertwining, right? The kingdom of Babylon, and you've got these worldly kingdoms coming together, which it talked about, right? You're like they're trying to marry each other in Daniel. You go on a little further in Revelation 17, here's what it says. Verse 12 talks about the beast and this beast with ten horns. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings, who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour. Together with the beast, which is the Antichrist, uh, these are, are of one mind, and they hand over the power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, and the, he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. I find it interesting they, they hand over their power, whatever that means, to the beast. So it's like they have strength, but they're brittle. Um, you have this intermarrying of ten kingdoms, ten nations that probably shouldn't belong together, that are now arising against the Lord and against his people. And what's interesting to me is this. It, it says they make war against the lamb, and he, he defeats them because he's the real king of kings. Right, that, that same language is used for Nebuchadnezzar in his dreams when Daniel's speaking to him. And there's this idea then that this stone comes in. If we could have that picture one more time. There's going to be this stone that comes in and breaks to pieces the feet and shatters every earthly kingdom that has ever existed as like dust in the wind. And set up a new kingdom, an eternal kingdom that becomes like a mountain that fills the earth. Obviously this... It, is Jesus. You know what's amazing to me? Throughout Scripture, Jesus is um, likened to a stone and a rock a lot. I want to just give you some of these. He's called the rock that he builds his church and his kingdom on when he's talking to Peter. Psalm 118. He's the stone that the builders rejected, which has become the chief cornerstone. Right? The world rejected him, and yet now the foundations of his kingdom are built upon him. Romans 9, 33. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. All right, he's going to be the stone of offense to some people that would want to come against the king, against Christ. But for others, he's our hope, he's our glory. 1 Peter 2.6. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Luke 20.18. Everyone who falls on that stone, Jesus, will be broken into pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. I love what Chuck Swindoll said about this kingdom, this, this rock kingdom. It says, when Jesus Christ returns to the earth to establish his millennial kingdom, he will break the nations with a rod of iron. He will shatter them like earthenware. As the smiting stone in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the Lord will not absorb, restructure, or adapt to previous kingdoms. Pray God. Praise God, right? 
He will totally annihilate them and set up his own monarchy, which will be absolutely perfect politically, morally, economically, and religiously, and he will rule over all the earth as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. I love this imagery of the most grand kingdoms of the world. What I was going to say earlier is just to think like we're a couple hundred years old and most of these kingdoms, like the best one goes for maybe a thousand years. I'm like, man, it's crazy that the greatest, strongest empires of the world, 200 years is a long time for some of them. And so you've got these great, grand kingdoms and and he comes in with his power, his glory, his might and makes them as dust in the wind. Romans talks about that we have this propensity in us to worship the created thing rather than the creator. There is something in us that longs to lift up the ability and the power and the glory of mankind. There's something in us that fears mankind. There's something in us that wants to look at what man can accomplish and worship those things. And they are but a shadow of the kingdom of God. You know, I thought about, I'll share a quick story with you. When I was in my 20s, I was commuting to a new job that was like 30 minutes away. And I had a truck that was gas guzzler. Gas was way up, and I couldn't get rid of a truck because I'm a man. So I was like, I need some type of commuter car then. And so my buddy had like a 1997 Honda Accord, beat up, dented up, paint, legit 300,000 miles. Paint was coming off. And I was like, dude, I'll buy this for real cheap if you want to sell it because he wanted a new car. He's like, Absolutely. It breaks down on him in Dallas, which I'm living in Northeast Texas at the time. He's like, I'm leaving it here. If you can come find it and pick it up and fix it, it's yours. That's what type of car we're dealing with. I was like, perfect. That's what I want. Bring that thing back. I was a school teacher at the time. It's summer. And like, you know, all of you guys, I watch a YouTube video and feel like I could do any of that. And I'm like, dude, I can do body work and paint this car. I just believe it. I can make this thing brand new. Uh, Never done any of that in my life. And I also saw this video, it was like, if you use Rust-Oleum paint for like 80 bucks, you can paint a whole car and make it look new. It was like, $80 paint job, perfect for this car. Legitimately, like 17 days of my life were spent trying to figure out how to do this car. I turned our garage into a paint booth. My wife was like, what are you doing? I needed a paint gun, so I borrowed it from a guy that like was into race cars and he had painted his own race car. They were beautiful. And he's like, here's how you do it. I was like, oh. You can look at his cars and like see 20 feet into how beautiful they were. I was like, I'm going to make this car just like this with $50 of Rust-Oleum. And so, dude, I, I do it. I paint this car. It was like 18 days. And I pull it out, and I'm like, this thing's amazing. Like, I crushed it. Like, I, I could probably open an auto body shop if I wanted to at this point. Um, and so I, when it was driving at like 20 miles an hour and you're like 10 feet away, you'd be like, that looks pretty good. But my friends would come up and be like, Matt, this just doesn't look good, you know. Um, there was something wrong with it. In fact, I, I eventually that went on to a friend, that car. It faded into like white pink. Um, I tinted the windows myself too, never done that. I was like, surely I could tint windows. It's peeling off. And you just see this 400,000-mile car driving around, white pink, flaking. Um, all that to say, when you set it up next to my buddy's race car, even though I was like, this is amazing, it was nothing compared to like a real paint job, right? You, you get close, you're like, Matt, no, like keep your day job, bro. Keep teaching math. I don't know. Don't paint cars. Don't do this again. But, but there's something in us. Lo- we love to do that with the world. 
We love to look at things that in the end are just garbage compared to the real thing and go, I, I, I want to ascribe glory to this. This, this gets my worth. This gets my, my time, my money, my energy, my family. We're, we're going to give it to these things. And there's a kingdom coming that when it stands up against the kingdoms of the world, we're going to go, man, those things are garbage. They're dust in the wind. And this is our hope as believers, that there's something a lot better coming than what we have today. And in this Chapter 2 of Daniel, the Lord is showing a pagan king his glory and his kingdom that will come. And Jesus has provided a way for you and I to not have to settle for a Rustoleum 1997 accord and have something really beautiful. That's what he's done for us. And it's coming and it's sure. <laughs> These things are taking place. We're, we're towards the end of the statue. And so we got to keep our minds fixed on this idea that the circumstances of your life were built so that God could receive glory. The places that you are at in your job and your homes is so that God can receive glory and honor. And he has something so much better for you than what we normally settle for. There's something better. And so we're fixing our eyes and our gaze on Jesus who is better. And so we finish, and this is that last part. Why does God put you and I in, in places that are impossible? So his glory is on full display. Look how it ends. It says, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face, this is verse 46, and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and an incense be offered up to him. He's like, dude, we're about to just bow down to you. But he doesn't steal the glory. He, he puts it to the Lord. And look what Nebuchadnezzar says. I, I don't believe he became a believer, but he, he saw something. The glory of God on full display. And here was his response. Verse 47. Truly your God is God of gods. Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel and his friends honors and put them over the kingdom. Jesus tells us in Matthew that you and I are to be the light of the world. And that people are to look to our good works and glorify him as God. And so he's going to put us in impossible circumstances so his glory can be on display. So that your faith will deepen. So that your trust and your worship and your love will be ignited for him. And he is going to show people who he is if we will not walk in self-reliance. But put ourselves in places where it's like, God, you got to do this. And he'll be faithful. And there's a future day for us that regardless of our circumstances here and the lot that we are given here, glory's coming. Let's pray together. And so, God, we thank you for Daniel chapter 2. God, I thank you that you know all things. Like this story is already written. And you, you've called us into such grand purpose. So much greater things than what we normally spend our heart's affection on. And so, God, I pray that we wouldn't settle uh, for things that will just be dust in the wind. God, I pray that if we, um, as we walk in, in life, that we would bring you glory. That we would have enough courage and faith and trust to step into places that you have to move or, or it doesn't work. So that we could see you do great and mighty things. 
And God, in the mundane things of raising kids and going to our jobs tomorrow and just doing the day-to-day life, would we not be glory hungry? In the places that you've placed us, would you get exceeding glory in what we're doing? Help us to see those opportunities. Help us to give you the praise for those things. So God, we worship you in this time. Would you speak to us? Thank you that you have paid uh, the price uh, for our sin that we couldn't pay. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.